Welcome everybody. I'm super excited today because today's guest is someone that every online entrepreneur needs, although most of you don't even know it yet. Uh, he's a lawyer, but he's not any lawyer. He's a internet lawyer to online businesses. Richard Chappell is a business lawyer from San Diego. He's been practicing for over 25 years and here he is with us today. How's it going, Richard? It's going well. Thank you for having me on. No problem. Thank you for coming. It's it's a pleasure. And I'm, like I said, I'm really excited because I, I've been doing businesses online for for many years. And I know that there are things out there uh, that I don't know, right? I don't know what I don't know. So every online business person like me and several others are breaking the law without even knowing. And do you find that that's an accurate statement that most, or if not everybody, is breaking the law on the internet? Uh, yes, it is, but maybe not as uh, it's maybe not as dire as it sounds. So, um, you know, if a lot of the listeners are in the United States, for instance, um, the federal government has kind of been lax at passing laws related to the internet. We had a big burst in the late 1990s. Um, when there was a joint effort to kind of protect the internet as a commercial medium. So you had things like the DMCA passed. Um, but since then, it's been pretty quiet just because of the political nature of the country. You know, people can't agree on anything. Um, so what you've seen is states have come in and they've, they've passed quite a few laws. And so a lot of people are violating particular state laws and, and don't even realize it. Um, but, you know, the, the chance of prosecution for those kinds of things is also fairly remote states are kind of famous for passing laws that never actually get enforced um, because of political reasons and, and what have you. So for instance, in Florida, Florida, there has a law that says you have a website, you have to have your name, your business name, your street address, and your phone number and email address published on it. Well, nobody does that. Um, you know, Amazon doesn't do that. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's one of those things. Now, how many people have been prosecuted for that? No, nobody that I know of. I mean, maybe there's been bizarre case in Florida after all, but, um, you know, but it's, it's just something that's out there. Um, there are all, all kinds of strange laws. Um, you know, kind of a funny one I'll tell you about is Texas passed a law that said that um, drug dealers, illegal drug dealers had to pass or had to pay taxes on their um, inventory, their illegal drugs, whatever they had. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> there's a legal theory that says basically um, you can only be prosecuted once for a crime. You can't be prosecuted again and again. Um, you know, if you're found innocent or, or you pay you pay some kind of a, a fine or damages or something of that sort, that's it. They can't do you a, a, again. So criminal lawyers in Texas started telling their clients or drug dealing clients, go down and pay the fine um, because technically that counts as a prosecution. And then if you get caught later, they can't prosecute you because you already had paid this fine. And so you have the attorney general in Texas, you know, screaming at the tax office, telling them to stop doing that. <laughs> So there are all kinds of bizarre laws out there. And, you know, whenever, we, you know, you have a show like this or you talk about legal things, people can end up getting terrified by some of the things they hear. Um, you know, that's not really the goal today. The bigger thing to take away from it is just that there are some things out there you need to be aware of and, you know, make sure you're not just walking face first into any kind of major problems. Absolutely. So, and before we get into this, uh, tell us, how did you get started? Was this always your plan to become an internet lawyer or you just realized it after a while? Uh, no, like most people, it wasn't my plan at all. Um, you know, it was, uh, 
I'm an older guy. So it was uh, 1980 or 1989. I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. I was living in Europe and my family was making uh, rather threatening comments about me coming back to the States or there would be dire consequences. Um, and <laughs> so I ended up back here and I actually was interested in international law for the sole reason that I would get to travel. Mm-hmm. And um, so studied that and ended up working for a uh, boutique uh, defense firm that specialized in uh, high-end complex cases and ended up starting doing a lot of wrongful death cases for lawyer or for lawyers for hospitals uh, and things of that sort. So I got completely off the track. And then, uh, of course, this internet thing kind of put an end to the need to travel around the world uh, because you can obviously have, you know, online meetings and what have you. Uh, so I took a year off to try to figure out what I was going to do. Went to Russia, of all places, the logical place. Uh, spent a year in Siberia and came back. And I had a friend who had become the CEO of a internet company. This is 19, well, 2000. And, um, and he was trying to find somebody to do the legal work. He couldn't find anybody, um, and you know, I told him point blank, I don't know what any of this work is. You know, I don't know these fields, and he was willing to pay to have me learn it. And so one thing led to another, and that's how I got into the field. Um, you know, so as usual, the grand plan went completely sideways, and uh, that's how I ended up here. But uh, the thing I enjoy about it is, uh, you know, most of my clients and helping them. Uh, you know, stay safe so that they can build their businesses. It's nice to see people build things. Uh, a lot of law tends to be more of a teardown kind of situation where you're, you know, in litigation, screaming at each other and, you know, what have you. So this is a little more uh, soothing on the soul, if you will. Yeah. And year 2000, was that the perfect year to start? Because I know, was it 98, 99? Wasn't that the year that uh, everything crashed prior? Like, Yeah, 2000 was probably a good time. Um, yeah, right around that time, you know, because you had the legal, all the laws coming out in 98, pretty much, 799. And then, yeah, you had the, uh, the financial ramifications of people realizing just because you had a website didn't mean you were going to make $50 billion. Uh, that all happened around 2000. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was an interesting time. One of the strange things about the web was that, you know, there was still a lot of money being pumped into it because of um, technological issues. There were a lot of companies that even came out of that still in pretty good shape because um, there was so much investment because people could see the potential, even if, you know, a lot of the, the boom had, uh, had failed. Um, and you could see companies, you know, changing their their strategies to something a bit more efficient. Amazon, of course, being a classic one, Amazon started out building, you know, huge warehouses and trying to carry their own inventory, which from a cost perspective, particularly in the field of books, which is their primary business model at that time, that, that's just a non-starter. The, the margins are so small. Uh, and sure enough, they were hurting. Uh, you know, everybody looks at Bezos and says, you know, what a brilliant man. Well, you know, he made all kinds of mistakes at the beginning. And then they, they moved more towards the market now where they have independent sellers, you know, as the primary inventory carriers. And, uh, you know, obviously that's worked out pretty well. Uh, <laughs> but you still saw a lot of people just pumping money into these companies because they were trying to figure out, you know, for instance, video. How do you get video from the street to the house? Uh, you know, that final 100 feet is difficult because the wiring into the house usually is insufficient. Uh, to carry that. So you had all kinds of technology development on bursting and things of that sort. So yeah, it was fascinating. So Richard, when, when it comes to uh, internet law, first couple of words that come at least to my mind, I don't know about the listeners is like uh, trademarks and copyright. Is that something you do as well? 
It is. It is something we deal with quite a bit. Um, yeah, sure. And trademarks, you're, you're essentially protecting uh, any kind of mark that's going to um, reflect a brand or a product in the minds of consumers. Uh, so the Nike swoosh is kind of the you know, one of the famous trademarks. If you see that swoosh as a consumer, you know what it means. You associate it with a company for better or for worse. Um, you know, the, the Apple uh, for Apple, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And then copyright trademarks actually I don't have many issues with, um, somewhat surprisingly. Um, you know, trademark law is pretty clear and the translation to the Internet isn't too difficult. It makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, where you see it typically is with domains. Uh, copyright is a whole different issue. <laughs> it's, uh, unfortunately, copyright law was established, you know, long ago, well before, you know, we had this digital platform and it doesn't always translate well. So you get into, you know, even now, I mean, we just finished this past year, uh, you know, the Prince dancing baby case, which was a case that went on for 10 years. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but a woman had posted a video on YouTube of her baby dancing to a Prince song for about 20 minutes. And the, the music publisher sued her uh, saying that that was copyright infringement. And a bunch of people were outraged. And so through crowdsourcing and what have you, you know, a firm agreed to represent her for the cheap. And this thing went on for 10 years as they argued over, you know, whether it was copyright infringement or not. And, all these different things. Um, so we're still trying to figure it out, but it's, uh, yeah, copyright's kind of the, the ugly side of, uh, or at least the contested side of what is and what isn't online. And plus you also have the additional factor that, you know, a lot of people want copyright infringement to occur. Um, a company will design, whether small or big, will design a whole campaign with the whole idea that people will take their content and run with it. You know, viral campaign, that's what that is. Well, technically a viral campaign is copyright infringement, except they're giving you consent to use the material. So, and if you think about, you know, sharing with social media, you know, where you can hit a simple, simple button and, you know, you've shared something, well, where was that sourced and all those kinds of things, you know, a lot of it is, is, you know, just shows how antiquated copyright law is and how it doesn't really apply well at all to the, you know, the internet as we know it, uh, because reasonably as a consumer, or even as a business person, you know, how do you know when you share something on, you know, Twitter or whatever, you know, that there was an original copyright approval for that? You don't. There's no way to know. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, that's why laws like the DMCA, they, they're helpful, even though a lot of people hate them. Um, you know, it is an effort to at least try to address some of that. But, yeah, copyright law online is kind of a mess. Yeah, I, I actually was uh, – I have one of the proofs of those, and it's um, – you know, I shared a YouTube video. I didn't upload it or anything. I just clicked share and I shared it to to Facebook. And then I received an email from Facebook saying that they were going to remove that video uh, because the copyright the copyrights were claimed by um, America's funniest home videos. And it was it was their video. I just clicked the share button, and so I couldn't understand like. I didn't upload this. All I did was click share, but I guess it 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 does make a little bit of sense because it is, yeah, just like you said, we're sharing viral content, but in that situation, I guess they didn't agree with it. Right. Yeah. yeah so with YouTube, if somebody uploads that video, you know, YouTube's terms say basically, you know, you acknowledge that you you have the right to use this video. Um, and a lot of people don't, so they'll upload things a lot of times without even thinking about it. They're not, you know, necessarily being malicious about it. 
And then, yeah, people start sharing it. Suddenly it's all over the place. And, you know, at that point, companies need to, to think about, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to go after, you know, all these different areas trying to get it taken down? Some companies mm-hmm. take the view that, well, it's free publicity, so we'll just leave it up. Um, you know, there are all kinds of issues there that, that start going, but that's exactly the case. Now, when you uploaded that video to Facebook, obviously, or when you, you shared it, you know, you obviously didn't have any intent. Um, so if anybody was to actually sue you for copyright infringement, you know, the fact that it was what we would call innocent copyright infringement, you know, means a court would be very unlikely to, you know, issue any sizable damages against you. Probably 200 bucks um, would be the number. And at that point, you know, the person who owns a copyright, well, they're not going to spend, you know, 75 grand or hundred grand pursuing you knowing full well that the judge is going to look at that and go, come on, um, you know, and award such small damages. Yeah. So how about, uh, for example, when it comes to trademark or registered marks, um, like one of the words that I know that is registered and everybody uses is the word realtor. Uh, when it comes to that or other examples, where can people uh, find out if it is trademarked and I guess any, any brand? Right. Well, with brands, you know, I mean, it depends on the strength of the brand. There are all kinds of things. I mean, technically you can go to the patent and trademark office and they have a trademark database, which you can check through and that gives you kind of a general idea. Um, But you can also look at, you know, just the usage online, doing searches for that word and you'll see things pop up. Um, You know, some trademarks are issued that are stronger than others. Um, So a word like realtor um, that's a common word. It's a commonly used word. So mm-hmm. if there is a trademark for it, um, you know, it's ripe to be attacked. Uh, it would be like me going out and trademarking the word hyperlink. You know, well, everybody uses it. Um, maybe it's not trademarked by somebody else yet. And if I could somehow figure out a way to finagle it through the, the trademark office and get it approved, you know, I might have a mark for it. Would I ever be able to enforce that? Mm you know, probably difficult. Now with Realtor, it's probably limited to the real estate market and it reflects, you know, the site realtor.com or something of that sort. And so they do have some strength with it, but would they be able to protect it from usage in books? Um, you know, as part of a text in a book or something of that sort, probably not, you know, so they're going to have to be very selective with that. Now, if you go to something, a word that is not commonly used like Google, um, you know, Google is a unique word. It's not used anywhere else. It's a um, you know, variation of a mathematical term. Uh, and so in that sense, and particularly because of the size of Google and what they do, that's a very strong trademark. So if I come out with Googles or I spell Google differently or something like that, but it sounds the same, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in trouble. Um, there's really no way to argue that, you know, I'm doing anything other than trying to glom on to their trademark. Um, and so you see, you know, these variations. Problem with trademark in litigation, trademark infringement litigation is very, very expensive. Uh, you're going to spend close to a million bucks defending a case. So <laughs> there's also the practical question of, you know, even if you think you're in the right, do you have the money to defend it? You know, maybe you have an insurance policy or something of that sort. Um, but trademark is definitely something that, um, you know, is, is contested, probably a little clearer than copyright, though. So, Richard for any kind of business that uh, I do online or any of the audience does online, what are some of the common things that people are not aware of and that we should know? Um, Well, it depends on the type of business you're running. I think the the biggest area we're seeing right now blow up is privacy law. Um, Privacy law in the United States is honestly a bit of a joke. 
um, has been traditionally. Um, it's just not something that we've really focused on. However, Europe, um, it's rather important as part of their initial you know, EU charter. And they recently uh, issued a new regulation called the General Data Protection Regulation uh, this past May. And it's very strict and it has all kinds of different rules. It's 99 articles and 237 recitals. It's like 450 pages. Um, but the basic idea behind it is <clears throat> you need a legal basis uh, for collecting personal information from people. And the legal basis typically can be like a contractual transaction. You can collect it there. So somebody purchases something from you, uh, you're fine. Um, but one of the, the most common forms is consent. And so if you go to websites now all the time, you see these little cookie things pop up, you know, and they ask you for consent. That's what they're doing. They're trying to get your consent to run their cookies. Um, GDPR was written by people who are not really internet savvy. And so a lot of it is stupefying. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to understand how websites go together, for instance. So their assumption seems to be that you build no matter how small you are, that you build your website from scratch, that you code your website from scratch. But we all know, you know, most people use WordPress or some other variation or whatever platform is, and you have modules that you just stick on to, you know, achieve whatever result you want. Well, they want you to be responsible for all those vendors. So you have to have contractual agreements with all those vendors and all those vendors have to promise to be compliant with the GDPR and it goes on and on and on. uh, And it gets very confusing. EU privacy law has kind of always been this way even before the GDPR, but prior to the GDPR, it really only applied to companies outside of Europe if you had some kind of physical presence in Europe. Um, It's a little more technical than that, but the basic idea was if you didn't have servers there or an office or something, they were never going to come after you. With the new GDPR, um, there's a territorial scope regulation that basically says that if you sell into Europe, even if you give away something for free, like an ebook to build an email list, um, and you're, you're doing that into Europe, then you need to comply with the GDPR. So it raises all kinds of questions about, you know, how would they ever enforce that and, you know, and all these things. We just don't know the answers to, to be quite honest. Um, but what you have seen, kind of a bizarre twist, is California um, has what's called an initiative system. And what it basically means, um, well, what it was intended for was grassroots groups could go out and collect signatures for a ballot initiative. If they got enough signatures, um, it would go onto the ballot and people would vote whether they wanted it or not. Uh, side effect is it's also um, allowed very wealthy people to put together an initiative they're interested in, pay people to go out to grocery stores or whatever and um, you know, get signatures. Um, and this recently happened and it was a realtor, uh, ironically, a real estate investor up in San Francisco and he uh, did this and it's basically the initiative was a match, sort of a match of the GDPR, we refer to it as GDPR light. And um, one thing led to another, and it's now law in California. But the problem is that it says uh, if you are, if you meet any of three thresholds, regardless of where you are, so if you're in another state, uh, you have to comply with it. And the three thresholds are uh, you have more than $25 million in sales, which a lot of listeners probably don't, um, to 50% of your revenues are derived, 50% or more of your revenues are derived from the sale of personal information. So if you're, for instance, running sites, generating leads, you know, and you're selling leads to other people. The third prong is the problem one. It says if you get 50,000 unique visitors or more in a year, well, that's only about 4,000 unique visitors a month, which is a pretty low threshold. Um, So if your business starts taking off, suddenly you can be caught up in this law and you would have to comply with it. Um, The good news is it's not as strict as the GDPR. It's a lot more practical. Uh, it also doesn't go into effect until January 1st, 2020. 
And the California Attorney General is charged with uh, the primary role of enforcing it. And uh, that office has shown a severe lack of enthusiasm for the law. (laughs) (laughs) They've announced that they're not going to issue regulations for it until the summer of 2020, which, you know, many, many of us intelligent lawyers pointed out was six months after the law goes into effect. And they just sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, there won't be any prosecutions then in the first six months. Um, So nobody knows if that's going to become a big issue or not. But uh, now you're seeing some interest in Washington, you know, to potentially pass one of these. Because what will happen is the states will all start issuing their own privacy laws and they'll all conflict with each other and they'll be confusing as all heck. Um, So hopefully that we're going to see that on a national level. Uh, The other thing that's come up, which I'm sure you're aware of if you're selling on Amazon or listeners are selling on any of these platforms is sales tax. Yeah. You know, we had the Wayfair decision and the Supreme Court came down and basically said states can uh, collect sales tax. Um, There's been a lot of panic on it. And I've seen a lot of articles that are just written poorly and don't convey exactly what the Supreme Court said. Supreme Court did not say states could unilaterally collect sales tax they said say, uh, states excuse me states could collect sales tax so long as it's not burdensome on small businesses so in north dakota for instance north dakota said well you have to collect and pay sales tax to us if you have sales to south dakota residents that exceed 200 sales in a year or i forgot what the dollar number was hundred thousand dollars in sales and if you don't have that if you don't meet those thresholds then you don't need to uh, and so all the states are going to have to pass similar laws. So if you've got, you know, nominal number of sales, uh, particularly in certain states, you're not going to have to collect and report that. Now, for a lot of people, you know, you're probably going to, the more populous states you are going to have to do that in California, New York, places like that. Um, but it's not necessarily a case where you're going to have to do it in each and every state. Is it going to be burdensome, a pain in the rear and everything else? Yes, it is. Um, but unfortunately, you know, welcome to the world of tax. Mm-hmm. So, Richard, when it comes to the entity formation, uh, there's a lot of advice out there, and which I don't know if it's legit advice or not. And uh, form your LLC in Delaware is the most common thing that's told out there. Right. Is that something that people should do? Well, forming an, ed- an entity makes sense. Um, you know, the Delaware advice is really only applicable if you are going to go public uh, because venture capital uh, investors are uh, favorable to Delaware law. They want Delaware entities. And they were actually going to want a Delaware corp, not an LLC. The reason for that is Delaware has laws that are very protective of investors and they'll allow those investors to take over your business if they don't think you're running it correctly. Um, and so that's that's the appropriate stance there. If you have a smaller business and you're not really you're running into those situations, um, you know, you need to look at your state laws and talk to a local attorney because most states now have what are called foreign registration laws. And so uh, even if you were to form in Delaware, they're going to make you form in your state uh, or register in your state. You're going to be paying all the taxes and whatever you would have paid normally, as well as what you're paying in Delaware. Um, you know, and I, I don't really see a huge benefit to that. Now, the argument will be that Delaware laws are more favorable to corporations and LLCs, and that's true, but we're at a point in entity law that, that, you know, unless you're committing outright fraud, um, you know, it's going to be difficult for people to pierce your entity uh, in any particular state. Um, So generally, I don't tell my clients to go to Delaware unless they're hunting for uh, venture capital, and then that's a whole different story. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, it's just, well, why pay all the extra costs? And, you know, as an attorney, you know, I feel pretty good that I can keep them protected. And, you know, if their entity gets sued, you know, they're not going to be personally liable. The choice between an LLC and an S-Corp in these states depends entirely on the state. You have to look at the state law. Um, so in California, S-Corps are a little more favored than LLCs just because LLCs have to pay annual taxes um, earlier than S-Corps. And there's, you know, California law, they make it as miserable as possible. Um, I know other locations like Chicago are the same way. Um, but it just depends on the state. Some states will be more favorable to LLCs. Some will be more favorable to corps. Um, so, you know, talk to somebody local, particularly a, uh, an accountant uh, in that case, and they'll probably be able to give you the, uh, you know, the better idea, but you definitely want to look at pass through entities, either the S corp, or the LLC, because we have the tra uh, Trump uh, tax cut that's coming in for small businesses. Uh, you know, where you're going to get a, I forgot what it is, 20% tax deduction or something of that sort on your gross, maybe 10%, but it's sizable. Uh, and so that's definitely the way to go. Um, I wouldn't do a sole proprietorship, uh, you know, unless you just don't have the funds to deal with, you know, forming an entity, uh, but as soon as you do, I'd put something up there because we live in a society where people like to sue each other. And, uh, you know, you want to make sure you have something that's going to protect you. Good. And talking about society where people would like uh, to sue each other, is it advisable for an Internet entrepreneur to have insurance? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The reason you want to have insurance is um, not only to pay uh, any judgment or any settlement against you. But um, people often ask me, well, why do I need insurance if I have an LLC? Well, the reason is if you get sued and you, you walk into a defense attorney's office, they don't work for free. <laughs> They're going to want, you know, you, they want to want you write a check. And if, if you have 50 to 75 grand or whatever it is laying around, well, that's great. Most people don't. Um, and so insurance will pay your defense costs. And that means paying your attorney's fees. And, most insurance companies will now have what are called approved defense boards. And so those are attorneys they've already vetted and approved and they'll sign an attorney to you and off you go. Uh, and so it makes it a little bit easier, if you will. And those attorneys usually are pretty, uh, pretty solid uh, because you know, they're going to keep, keep the insurance companies businesses. They have to produce, you know, solid results. Um, and so anyways, you have that, that cost of defense that's covered. If you don't have that, you know, then suddenly you have to come up with this money and regardless of the merits, you know, of the case, I mean, it could be complete nonsense. You know, if you don't have funds to defend it, well, you know, you mm. sometimes have to capitulate. And a, a few years ago, it would be very hard to find, uh, let's say, an insurance broker or even an internet lawyer, or sorry, a, a lawyer that knew uh, it was directly related to the internet. So when it comes to insurance nowadays, is it quite straightforward to just walk into an insurance company and they will know what to give me? Uh, unfortunately, no. <laughs> the insurance company is there. The insurance company, insurance industry is not not the quickest at evolving. Um, so what you're seeing right now is they'll try to give you just a general business policy, and then they'll slap, you know, a, a cyber risk policy onto it, a writer or something of that sort. And here's the important things with insurance is you need to read the policy. So they're going to give you a, like a two page thing. Here's an estimate and here's this shiny little brochure for the policy. Well, yeah, none of that stuff means anything. You need to get what's called a specimen, ask them, I need to see the full policy. And then you want to look at exclusions 
and see what's excluded from coverage. And you'd be surprised what's excluded from coverage. And a lot of times, you know, unfortunately those policies are just a junk. Um, There are online brokers. There's one called hiscox.com. They're kind of a clearing house. They're familiar with the fields and I've heard good things and bad things about them. It just kind of depends who you get set up with apparently. Um, and you can shop around for local brokers. You know, most people uh, who are listening to this are probably going to have friends who are also running online businesses. Ask them who they've used, um, because if you do find one broker who knows what they're doing, um, you know, the name gets out pretty quick, and they're happy with that because they pick up business. There was a gentleman in Atlanta who did great stuff, but then he left the field, went to work in some other field, and uh, left everybody stranded. So. Um, <laughs> You know, right now I don't know of anybody. There's a woman I'm using in San Diego um, who I just started using. Kind of waiting to see how that goes. But um, yeah, shop around and definitely, absolutely, make sure you read the policies before you pay anything. So you, you make sure. And it's you know, people hate boilerplate, but it's it's usually pretty clear as to what they're covering and not covering. Uh, and you want to make sure that matches your business. Nice. How about with if I was to start a business today? And I would have one, two, three, whatever amount of co-founders or partners. What's some of the things that I would need to to know or to do to be able to, you know, uh, get a, a contract done perfectly? Right. Yeah, you're going to want something. It would either be a partnership agreement or a co-founder agreement. It just depends on what you do as far as moving forward as a business entity. But you want something in writing that's going to set forth, you know, what everybody's duties are, what their obligations are, and then it's going to have something called stepped ownership, which means that um, you know people need to perform for a certain period of time before they're entitled to their ownership. Um, things of that sort. The problem you run into is, that, you know, particularly when you have multiple partners. Um, is everybody's fired up at the beginning, you know, and the idea is great and we're going to make a billion dollars after the first year and it gets to, you know, month three and it's, you know, it's like having children. It's, you know, month three. Well, this isn't quite as great as I thought this was going to be a lot of it's hard work and, you know, Hey, we're not even going to be profitable. And then suddenly, you know, one of the partners stops showing up. And, um, so you need something in writing, you know, to address that what's going to happen. You know, you can fire them, but what happens with, you know, their their interest in the business? Do they still get a piece of profits? Are they still an owner? Those kinds of things. And you want to make sure that they don't. Um, if you don't deal with those up front, um, the problem you run into is that the company is kind of in, in a, a no-win situation because the only way to really resolve the problem is to actually go to court and to ask a judge uh, to look at it and, and resolve the issue. And you're going to spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody is. Um, and it tends to kill off any final enthusiasm for the business that any of the founders have. Uh, and the result is usually not something anybody's happy with um, because the judge is going to apply state law um, to you know the particular situation. And the state law tends to be written uh, in ways that aren't really you know, favorable to the business uh, to either side. Um, and so the end result is you spend a bunch of money, you get a result where, you know, the person who's not performing gets booted from the company. Uh, so they're unhappy, but the company has to pay them a certain amount of money. So the company's unhappy, um, you know, and the lawyers have made money and the judge who doesn't know anything about your business has decided your fate. And so, you know, I mean, it's almost always going to be a disaster and almost always the business breaks up afterwards. Uh, you know, unless it's a large, you know, publicly traded business, but uh, it just, people get, you know, it's a divorce. It's a marriage divorce. Mm-hmm. That's all it really is. And, you know, if you've ever had the joy of going through one of those, um, you know, you come out the other side and you're not a happy camper. Let's just put it that way. 
So it's not as simple as writing a, the friendship contract where, where we write down on a piece of paper, uh, you get 33%, you get 33%, I get 33%, sign here. It, it's not as simple as that. Right. No, no. You really want to address particularly, you know, the potentials of, you know, what happens if people don't perform. That's really the side of it, you know, you need to look at. And you really want to do it before the business launches because then there's no money. You know, there's no, there's no real value. It's just an idea. And so, you know, it's easier to come to reasonable, you know, positions. Uh, than it is if you're a year down the line and you know, you've had some money come in and now everybody's starting to get grabby about you know what they think their their right is or it was my idea or this that and the other um, so you need to come to you know that kind of decision typically you want to do it with a lawyer and that way you can make the lawyer the bad guy um, so hmm. the lawyer's the one going well what if Bob doesn't show up for work or what if John develops a drug habit or you know these kinds of things um, so that you don't have to ask each other those questions um, but you know, you also tend to also find out then if maybe some of the partners maybe aren't as quite as committed as, as you would have thought, um, you know, because some of the answers will be interesting. Uh, the other thing to consider is due diligence, uh, particularly if you're going for venture capital, um, or, or large financing of some sort of angel investing, because they will do due diligence on each of you. And if it turns out, you know, one of your partners, uh, has, you know, was indicted for securities fraud five years ago and you don't know, um, you've got a huge problem because nobody's going to give you a penny. Uh, <laughs> so, so forming due diligence on each other is definitely something you want to do. And if one of the partners are, you know, has a problem with that, well, that should be a red flag um, because what are they hiding? Exactly. So in, if instead of us starting a business, if we were to buy an, an online business, let's say, I don't know, Shopify store or even, even better, a Amazon business. Is there also lots of due diligence that I should do? Should I just hire somebody uh, like, like you, for example, to look at everything? Is it pretty straightforward? What do you think? Uh, you know, it depends on the size, how much money you're spending. Um, you know, if you're spending, you know, five grand, then no. But if you're spending, yeah. you know, 50 grand or something more, then yes. Um, the due diligence on those types of transactions can be really tricky. Um, one, you need to figure out how that's going to happen with the platform. So, for instance, on eBay, uh, eBay actually doesn't want you selling your store. And they have all kinds of terms that prevent that. However, you can call them and get approval, but they want you to have a physical location and all these different rules. And the rules seem to change all the time. Mm -hmm. so one, you have to make sure that um, you know, the platform is going to allow for it and you hit all the, the marks. And then you want to cover that in the agreement if you know, they eventually say no for some reason. Um, second issue then is yeah, due diligence. How do you, how do you determine um, you know, the viability of that store? You're going to want to see finances. You're going to want to see you know, all these things, a history, uh, you know, of different transactions and whatever the critical information is. Um, but in some cases it's just difficult. So if we move away from, you know, one of those stores and we look at a website itself, um, you know, well, maybe you have ideas you want to get rankings, organic rankings from SEO. Well, how do you determine if that site was ever penalized? You know, maybe, you know, three years ago it was penalized and, you know, if the person just turns off their Google console, well, there's no way to know really. Um, you know, you can go through and do some tracking and try and see if, you know, the rankings all dropped at some point, um, you know, but there can be other reasons for that. Um, so, yes, due diligence is important and it is kind of a puzzle where you're hunting and trying to figure out, you know, what are these different things that happen. I had a client like that and they were going to pay close to seven figures for our website and we eventually did learn that it was 
penalized from an SEO perspective. And then it come back in the rankings, you know, after a lot of the questionable links had been removed. But then there was that question, well, you know, are you comfortable moving forward with this? You know, is Google paying more attention to the site? You know, what if you, you know, build a link that they don't like? Are they going to, you know, evaporate your site from the rankings? And mm-hmm. <laughs> what's the impact of that? And, you know, and those are questions that had to be evaluated. So every, every transaction is a little bit different. Um, but, yeah, you definitely want to look into it. You don't want to just plop your money down. And one thing that worries me is um, old taxes. If I were to buy a business that owed taxes previously, uh, and normally when you buy an online business, it does not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily your neighbor, right? So probably the person that's selling you the business is not even the same country as you. Uh, if they owe taxes, now those owing, owing taxes are transferred over to me and I will owe them. Uh, well, the tax authority is certainly going to take that position. <laughs> you know, whether you can fight it or not, honestly, I don't know. Um, that would be kind of a CPA question. I'm not a tax attorney, but yeah, no, you can guarantee that that's going to be the position that they take. Uh, and, you know, and you're going to have to address those. Yeah, one of the problems, one of the downsides with the internet is what you're pointing out is people are in different locations. So sometimes agreements, you know, they're nice to have, but they don't really carry any weight. Um, you know, if I have an agreement with somebody who's in the Philippines or India and I'm in the U.S., well, how am I ever going to enforce that agreement? Um, you know, I can go into court here and get it enforced, but a court order in the U.S. doesn't mean anything in those other countries, just as a court order in India wouldn't mean anything in the U.S. It has no value. Um, so, you know, how are those transactions handled? And um, despite some of the things you see humanity do, um, I will say that most people are pretty, pretty much on the up and up. Uh, surprisingly small number of cases come through my door that involve those kinds of situations. And I think a lot of it comes down to reputation. You know, if somebody is going to be online and they start screwing with their clients like that or with other people, you know, that word gets out pretty quick. Oh, yeah. once, that, once that word's out there, man, you are done. Uh, you know, if it becomes apparent that you're not a trustworthy source, well, you know, people can find that pretty quickly and you're never going to do business with anybody else again. <laughs> um, and that seems to be the main deterrent, but it is a concern and there's always going to be risk in, in these transactions. It's just a question of, you know, do you understand what those risks are and are you comfortable with them? You know, what you said there, it makes perfect sense. And at the same time, it's somewhat fantastic that if you want to grow your brand, or grow yourself as a um, you know as an expert in, in a brand. It takes so much effort to to keep growing and to get you know uh, exposure out there. But if you screw up, if you do something wrong, the whole world will share it, and everybody will know. Suddenly, you are the one that screwed up, right? <laughs> No, the old cliche, you know, in restaurant business, you know, make a hundred great meals and nobody, nobody knows, make one bad meal and everybody will know, um, you know, this is kind of the way the world works. Um, well, sometimes it's, it's good to know that though, because it does keep a lot of the, the, the scary, strange groups, you know, um, under control a bit. Yeah. So Richard, a couple of questions now uh, about you. So as a internet lawyer, um, are you, I know you know a lot about the internet itself. Is that part of your profession or did you just learn it because like you want to know? I mean, do you know how to code? Do you do web development, SEO? Do you have all those 
pieces? Um, some I do. So coding, I don't do anything with coding. Um, I understand enough to deal with certain issues, you know, the pop up cookie tracing, those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't hold myself out as anybody like that SEO. I used to do my own SEO. Um, but to be honest with lawyers, because of our niche, you know, everybody's such huge fans of lawyers Um, you know, SEO rankings, getting a top ranking doesn't even really carry that much value um, because most people are, who are, need a lawyer are going to do it through a referral basis or through somebody that they've heard. So for my niche, you know, podcasting, appearing as guests on shows like yours is you're really kind of the major marketing approach because people can actually hear me and then decide whether, you know, I sound like a jerk or not, um, you know, and, and make decisions based on that. Whereas if it's just a cold, you know, listing in an SEO or in a search engine result, you know, they're, they're less, uh, less likely to call me. Um, so it just kind of depends on that side of it. But yeah, no, there's a lot of it that I am interested in. Uh, you know, the dark web fascinates me. Yeah. Uh, the, the splinter net, you know, the things that we're seeing now with uh, the internet being divided up with ICANN being moved from uh, U.S. supervision to more of an international basis is also pretty interesting to see what's happening, particularly since they've shown they have no idea what they're doing in Europe and they keep losing lawsuits. Um, but yeah, so there's, some, there's a lot of fascinating stuff out there just, you know, from an interest level to learn. Do you also do business online, like any e-commerce or do you sell anything? Uh, yeah, I have a company called uh, DMCAAgentService.com uh, with the DMCA, which is a U.S. copyright law. You have to designate an agent, uh, and their information is published online. The agent receives any copyright complaints that copyright owners have. And uh, one of the problems is you have to list your uh, physical address and your phone number and your email. And so a lot of people are working from home, don't want to do that for obvious reasons. I don't want one of their quote-unquote fans showing up at the door. Yeah. Um, and so we offer an agent service. 70 bucks a year uh, and you know my information goes out there instead of um, you know theirs so they're a little a little more secure from that, that perspective so people will show up at your door instead <laughs> yes exactly but we're prepared uh, we, we already, we're already ready for that now one of the weird things about the um, DMCA is that they allow the agent to use a PO box so I have a P.O. box. They don't allow the business to use a P.O. box. I don't understand why, um, but uh, it is one of the weird quirks. Copyright office is a bit of a strange place, um, and but that's kind of the difference. So, uh, yeah, they show up at my local post office. If they drive out here. I live in a remote area. So Nice. So now, Richard, you I know you love hockey and also traveling, and w one of the things that I want to know is, why did you move to Siberia at one point? What was so attractive there? Uh, well, I'd done a lot of traveling before that, and I was looking for a place where I could stay for a while, maybe up to a year. I had basically a year sabbatical um, where I was getting paid, uh, even though I wasn't going to be working because I'd uh, been successful with a lot of cases that were um, – you know, defending cases that we should have paid a lot of money out of and we ended up not doing so. So the clients were very happy. Everybody was very happy. And it was just, I didn't like the work, to be honest with you. It was miserable. Mm -hmm. um, so I was looking for a period where I could go contemplate my, uh, contemplate my navel, if you would, and try to figure out what I was going to do with my life and um, going somewhere remote and kind of getting embedded in a whole different culture was something that, you know, interested me. Still does to this day. Uh, it, you know, Siberia was certainly going to qualify. And uh, so I, I knew somebody who worked with a charitable group that worked there. And next thing I know, I'm on a plane. And then suddenly it occurred to me I didn't speak any Russian. And maybe this wasn't the greatest idea. And 
but it actually turned out to be a great experience. Very nice. How about hockey? What is your favorite team? Regrettably, it's the Los Angeles Kings who are in dead last place in the entire NHL. They're oh. horrible this year, but uh, yeah, they had a couple couple good years, uh, four or five years ago, won the cup. But yeah, no, they're just god awful now. Um, but you know, fan, you got to be there through uh, thick and thin. Uh, so my hope is in the next hundred years, maybe they'll be good again. Uh, <laughs> but that's uh, yeah, odd. I grew up in San Diego, so you wouldn't think I'd be interested in hockey. But uh, I was always just fascinated by it. I love the physical games. I played rugby growing up, and uh, so uh, yeah, it attracted me. I don't know why, but uh, always been a fan. Very nice. I'm personally, I'm a big soccer fan because I, I grew up in Europe and I lived there for. 25 years so sure, sure. which team uh it's called sporting sporting yeah. of portugal yeah uh-huh. and uh yeah unfortunately they're they're not doing great either so. <laughs> well, it goes in cycles you know you never know but yeah no sporting's pretty good team they're dominant in portugal usually aren't they yeah they're they're always uh top three always top right. three yeah yeah i'm a liverpool fan so i know misery yeah <laughs> very good Richard so if uh, if our audience if they need help if they were looking for for somebody to help them with their their trademarks their copyrights or any litigious uh, work I suppose where can they find you uh, you can always find me my website it's SoCal like Southern California SoCalInternetLawyer.com um, social media I'm up on LinkedIn quite a bit uh, just send me a question i'll be happy to add you to uh the group follows me um i'd love to tell you i'm on twitter and facebook and everything else but honestly i very rarely do i actually go there uh, i just don't have time uh but yeah linkedin or my website's fine and if you need a dmca agent uh dmcaagentservice.com very creatively named uh <laughs> is is another place to find me so any of those work fine very good i see that your your domains are properly seo just by the the keywords in there yes yes well yeah it used to be great when an exact match you know counted so much more than it does now but yeah no there was a there was a period there a few years ago where i was a happy man <laughs> i know i know i had i had the same thing and i was buying domains that nobody else wanted <laughs> just because <laughs> of that. Yeah, it was yeah. a good strategy for a long time you know for, really yeah. <laughs> Very good. Richard, uh, I'm going to put the links on the show notes so, um, so people can, can find you. And I really appreciate your, uh, you coming on the show. It's, uh, it's an exciting time. And I want to thank you for coming. And all the best. We're going to stay in touch, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. It was a good time. No problem. Thank you.